0: One of the most important truths in the Bible is that all of God's creation is under His authority. We read of this in Psalm 103, verse 19. Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. That is because God has created all things. Because He has created all things, He rules over all. He has authority over all. The Bible also teaches that God is good. Listen to Psalm 145, verse 9, which speaks about the goodness of God. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. God uses His authority for the good of His creatures. And in His goodness, He has instructed us how we who are under His authority must live. He promises blessing to those who will obey Him, and He warns of punishment for disobedience. Yet we all have rebelled against Him, wanting to be our own authority. And the Bible calls this sin. For this, we deserve God's eternal judgment. And we will, we, we, we will suffer this judgment unless God in His grace and mercy saves us. The heart of the Bible is the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ to save sinners. What God has done through Christ's death and resurrection to save sinners. The Bible teaches that God is a Trinity, that God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons are one God. There is only one God. And He exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons were of one essence, equal in power, equal in glory. And the good news of the Bible is that God the Father sent God the Son into this world to become flesh and to redeem a people For God's glory. Through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and His triumphant resurrection. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved by God. And the Holy Spirit places you into Christ's body that the Bible calls the church. It is Christ's church. For Christ redeemed the church with His blood. And Christ is the church's head. We read of this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18a, which says, And He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the church. And as the head of the church, Christ is an authority over the church. He has authority over every aspect of each of our individual lives as believers. And He has authority over each local church. Authority over how we relate to one another in the church. Authority over how we gather together and and what we do when we gather together. All those whom Christ has graciously redeemed with His precious blood, who have received a new heart from the Holy Spirit, uh, joyfully submit to Christ's absolute authority over our lives. We have been changed in salvation. We have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Our heart of stone has been removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. And having been redeemed with that precious blood of Christ, having received that new heart from the Holy Spirit, we joyfully submit to Christ's absolute authority over our lives. Yet, there are times when some who name the name of Christ and fellowship with the local church live in a rebellious way and will not repent even after being called to repent. Christ, as the head of the church, in His goodness, has given us instructions in the New Testament for disciplining such a person on Christ's behalf. As the head of the church, Christ cannot allow rebellion to continue in His church. In our verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians, we have been studying the instructions on church discipline that Christ gave through His Apostle, the Apostle Paul, to the church in Corinth. These instructions are in chapter 5. And though this may not be a pleasant subject to think about, we are seeing that it is vital for Christ's church. We will conclude our, our study of this chapter today. And it is important that we come to understand the instructions in this chapter now, so that we are equipped to handle disciplined situations when they Arise. Our text is 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 13, which I'll read to us now. So please stand in honor of God's Word if you are able. Chapter 5 verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from Among you. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. In the earlier verses in this chapter, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth that it is reported that there is sexual immorality in the church of a kind that not even the world approves of. That one of the members in the church had his father's wife. In other words, one of the members of the church was in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Incensed. Paul says this is something that society doesn't even approve of. Now, in Corinth, sexual immorality was rampant, as it was throughout the Greco Roman world. But there was one form of sexual immorality that not even the Greco-Roman world approved of, and that form was actually present in the church. And Paul says that he has judged this person already. He says that the church has failed. That the church should have already by this time removed... This member of the church who was persisting in this sin, who was not repenting of it, that that they had failed to remove this individual from their midst. Paul says, "I, I, I have already judged this person. And as an apostle, he revealed to them, this is the will of Christ that you would remove this person. He's known by by many people in the congregation to be guilty of this ongoing sinful relationship. And so now you need to do what Christ has instructed the church to do in such a situation and to remove him. The way that the apostle put it was, "...deliver this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord." Paul says it's very dangerous when someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ persists in sin and will not repent. And so for the sake of this person's soul, you are to remove them from the church, putting them back out into the world, the the realm where, where, where Satan operates. That he would be brought to his senses. That he would be brought to repentance. The order he has not repented after receiving the ordinary means of, of God's grace in our life to, to, to sanctify us. He's not received that. So now you are to do the last resort, and you are to remove him, that he be brought to his senses. That his spirit would be saved on the day of the Lord. You see, excommunication is a rescue mission. That person's soul is in great danger. They've not responded to the calls of the church to repent, they've not responded to the word of God and its sanctifying influence upon their life. So they're to be delivered out into the world, that they be brought to their senses. They would repent and be restored to the church. And their spirit would be saved on the day of Christ when He returns. Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is like yeast and it spreads quickly through through the dough. And sin is like that, Paul says. If there's known sin in the church, and after being confronted, there's no repentance, but it continues then that's going to have a corrupting influence upon the whole church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so Paul says, clean out the old leaven. A way of saying, remove this person from the church. He says, cleanse out the old leaven for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul alludes back to the instructions that the Lord gave for the Passover observance and the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was begun with the Passover. How the Jews were to, uh, at the very beginning of that, they were to cleanse out the leaven out of their houses. The Israelites, when they Uh, left Egypt, Uh, they ate unleavened bread, they left in in haste after the angel of death came through and put to death the firstborn sons of the Egyptian households, but passed over the homes of the Israelites that had the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorway. Right after the angel of, of death came through and passed over the Israelite homes, the Israelites were sent out of Egypt. They left in haste. They ate unleavened bread. The Israelites were to remember this. Cleansing out the leaven, which represented their old life um, in Egypt. The way of the world. The way of, of, of life when, when they were enslaved in Egypt. They were to clean out the leaven. And then they were to, for seven days, they were to not eat any leaven, eat unleavened bread. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When Christ died for us and His death was applied to our soul by the Holy Spirit, we were cleansed from our sin. We were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. We were freed by the the sacrifice of Christ from our sin to now live a new life of consecration to the Lord. A new life that is set apart unto the Lord. A new life of service unto the Lord. Paul says, since Christ our Lamb has been sacrificed, cleanse out the old leaven, that we would be a new lump, an unleavened lump, for that is what we really are. Positionally, as believers, we are holy. Christ's sacrifice, applied to our soul when we believed in Christ, sanctified us. We are holy as a church, positionally. But we are to also be holy in our practice. And so when there is sin that that is persisting, that is not being repented of, that person is to be removed for the purity of the church. That that sin would not then have a corrupting influence upon the congregation. Paul says, let us celebrate the the, the, the festival, not with the old leaven of, of malice and evil, but rather let us celebrate the, the, the festival uh, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and, and truth. Let us now live as a church in a way that is holy in God's sight, instead of continuing to live in our old sinful ways. That's what Paul has said already. And he brings this to a close In our text, which I have read to us, in verses 9 through 13, we will see two main ideas. The first is what church discipline requires of the church, and the second is what church discipline recognizes regarding the church and the world. First of all, what church discipline requires of the church. We see here that church discipline requires us to stop associating with a so called brother who continues in sin and will not repent. Paul had communicated this to the Corinthian church in an earlier letter. Notice what Paul says about this in verse 9. In verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter. Now, don't go looking in scripture for this letter um, because it's not been preserved, it was not an inspired letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, but not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's not been preserved as Scripture. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now note this word, to associate. He wrote to them not to associate with sexually immoral people. This word, to associate with, in the original language, is a word that can also be translated to mingle with depending on the context, to associate with, to to mingle with. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But the Corinthians have not followed the instruction that Paul wrote to them. Perhaps this is part of the reason why Paul called them arrogant in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul said, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul had written them this letter. He had told them not to associate with such a person, and yet they've continued to associate with this brother uh, who is in this ongoing sinful relationship. Now Paul sees a need to clarify what he meant in that previous letter. Look at verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul clarifies what he was communicating in that first letter. He makes it crystal clear so that now there can be no possibility of claiming to to understand this differently. The Apostle's instruction not to associate with people in sin was specific to people who bear the name of brother. In other words, people who profess faith in Christ and are known as Christians. Christians. The instruction did not regard the people of the world. To disassociate from anyone in sin would require us to go out of the world because every unbeliever is in sin. To try to avoid associating with unbelievers would not only be nearly impossible, it would actually be disobedient to Christ. There are some people in church history who have tried to get completely away from the people of the world. They've become hermits. They've found some isolated place to live all by themselves. It would be disobedient to Christ to try to get away from the world. There's three passages on this that I want to give to you. The first is Matthew 5:14 through 16. In Matthew 5:14 through 16, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples, "You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden." Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are in the middle of a spiritually dark world. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been called by Christ the light of the world. We are called by Christ to let our light shine before men, to let our light shine before others in the world, that they may see the works that God brings about in us and give glory to the Father. The second passage that I want to give you about this is John chapter 17. John 17 verses 15 through 18. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, which He prays on the night before He goes to the cross... He prays in verses 15 through 18, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, that's His disciples. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus Christ has sent us, who are His disciples, into the world. To be His representatives in the world. We are not of the world. We are very different from the world. But we are sent by Christ into the world as His representatives. And so a third passage is Acts eight. In Acts 1.8 Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus Christ has called us as His disciples to be His witnesses. Until He comes again, we are to be His witnesses wherever He has placed us. And throughout the rest of the world, we are to be His witnesses proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have a responsibility towards unbelievers. We have a responsibility to be a witness to unbelievers. So Paul was not saying, do not associate with the people of the world, far from it. We are to associate with people of the world for the purpose of being a witness, being a light. That clarifies what Paul did not mean. While we as believers are are to associate with people in the world as a witness for Christ, we are not to associate, he says, with a so-called brother in Christ if he is known to be in sin and will not repent. If someone who professes faith in Christ and is known to be a Christian is sexually immoral and will not repent, Paul says we are not to associate with him. In this text it says that if someone who professes faith in Christ and is known as a Christian Someone who is known as, as a brother in Christ is entangled in greed and will not repent or not to associate with him. Now to be guilty of greed here does not mean that this uh, so-called brother is suspected to be motivated by greed. Only God can see and judge the motives of the heart. When it talks about being guilty of greed here, it talks about it acting in a greedy way, taking what belongs to others and being unwilling to share. That can be observed. He says if someone who is called your brother in Christ is entangled in greed and will not repent, we're not to associate with him. As Christians, we are to be the opposite of greedy, are we not? We're called to be content with what the Lord has given to us. We're called to be generous to others. And so greed is a sin. And if we continue in that without repentance, then believers are not to associate with us. If someone who bears the name of brother is idolatrous, Paul says, and will not repent, we are not to associate with him. Now you might think, when would this ever occur? When would someone who professes to be a believer... When would they commit idolatry? Well, do understand that there was much pressure in Corinth, as there was throughout the Greco-Roman world, to participate in idolatrous feasts. It was viewed as a person's civic duty uh, to attend certain idolatrous feasts where false gods were worshipped in in order to to get the favor of the gods upon the city. It was viewed as a person's civic duty to participate in idolatrous feasts where where false gods were worshipped. Trade guilds pressured their members to participate in these idolatrous feasts that worshipped false gods. But to engage in idolatry, even when done because of external pressure, amounts to disloyalty to God. Rather than being idolatrous, we are to be singularly loyal to God. Paul also says, If someone who bears the name of brother is a reviler and will not repent, we are not to associate with him. What does it mean to be a reviler? The New American Standard 2020 edition translates this as verbally abusive. The NIV translates this as a slanderer. The word in the original, that's translated by the ESV as reviler, covers all forms of verbal abuse, including maligning, Reviling and slandering another. Rather than reviling, we who have been purchased with the blood of Christ are to speak words that are seasoned with grace. Just the opposite of reviling. Paul also says, If someone who bears the name of brother is a drunkard and will not repent, we are not to associate with him. Why is getting drunk a sin? Getting drunk is a sin because we lose self-control when we get drunk. Rather than getting drunk, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to be sober-minded rather than getting drunk. Paul says, If a so-called brother is a swindler and will not repent, we're not to associate with him. A swindler uh, will swindle people out of money or steal from them. Rather than being a swindler, we as believers are to work for a living. And we're to share with others. Now, for this list of sins that Paul gives us here, He appears to include sins that were characteristic of unbelievers in Corinth. That would have been characteristic of the Corinthian believers before they were being saved. So it would be areas where where they would would be tempted as Christians to, to fall back into these old sinful ways. Now this list is certainly not exhaustive, but it is representative. The instruction here is not to associate with such a person. Now, since the context is excommunicating church members who are in sin, this instruction not to associate with such a person applies first and foremost to excommunication. When a church disciplines a member by excommunicating them, the whole congregation has the responsibility to stop associating with the individual. And Paul says at the end of verse 11, not even to eat with such a one. So he's explaining what he means by not associate, even to not eat with such a one. Now, we may eat with unbelievers as we seek to be a light for the Lord, but not with people who have been excommunicated from a local church. Our purpose in not associating was spelled out back in verse 5. I want you to go back to verse 5 to see it for yourself. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. When we're walking in sin, we're walking according to the flesh rather than according to the Spirit. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, for the destruction of what is fleshly in him, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A true believer will persevere in the faith to the end. There's someone falls into grave disobedience and continues in a state of unrepentance and, and, and never comes back to following Christ, in the end, that would show that they never really were saved. This is serious. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That he may be brought to his senses, sentences that he might repent, that he might be restored to fellowship with the church. They might continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, which would show that he is saved. And on that last day, when Jesus comes again, it will not be away from, away from me, I never knew you. It will be enter the joy of my presence. So when we must stop associating with a church member who is removed from the church, it must be done out of love. It must be done out of love. Paul makes this clear in Second Thessalonians chapter three. I want you to turn there with me. Second Thessalonians chapter three. We have a similar instruction in Second Thessalonians three. And here Paul makes it clear that the motive must be love. Look, look first at verse six. Verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. There was a problem in the church in Thessalonica. You had some believers who were refusing to work for a living. Uh, for whatever reasons they gave, uh, they stopped working and they were in idleness and they were... Depending upon others to provide for their daily needs. And Paul says here, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us, who's not walking in accord according with the teaching that, that we as apostles have given to the church. Then go down to verse 14. Verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Now, note those words, have nothing to do with him. Those are translated from the same Greek word that we have in our text when it says not to associate with a so-called brother and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy But warn him as a brother. So this passage instructs the same thing that our text instructs. Don't associate with that so called brother who's persisting in sin, who will not repent. Don't associate with them, have nothing to do with them. Verse 15 do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There would be a temptation when you, for the Purposes that Paul spells out, that you stop associating with someone who has been a member of the church, there would be a temptation to have an attitude of, now, now they're my enemy. No, they're not your enemy. You are to warn them as a brother. Our hope is that they really are our brother. Or if they're not our brother, they will become our brother. As, as sin is, is, is not tolerated. As they're called to repent. Repent. Warn them as a brother. This is to be done in love. Now come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There are solid churches who disagree on the specifics of not associating with someone who has been removed from the church. Some churches believe that the person is not to be allowed to attend any of the meetings of the church, including the Sunday morning worship service, while there are some other sound churches that believe that generally the person is to be allowed to attend the Sunday morning worship service, but without engaging in fellowship conversations. After studying this whole chapter, I agree with the first view, that the person who is removed is not to be allowed to attend any of the meetings of the church. Not the Sunday morning worship service. Though unbelievers are certainly welcome to attend the Sunday morning worship service, this chapter calls upon us to treat a so-called brother who has been removed differently than we treat the people of the world. We are to associate with the people of the world. As a witness for Christ, we're not to associate with the brother who has been removed. And verse 5 says, We are to deliver the person to Satan. I cannot see allowing a person to continue to come to the Sunday morning worship service. I can't see that being consistent with the terminology of delivering a person to Satan. Certainly, we are not to fellowship with the individual, neither at church gatherings nor outside church gatherings. Any conversation we have with the person who has been removed is to be focused on helping them to repent. Repent so they can be restored back into fellowship with the church. Now Jesus gave us steps to follow, to address a brother's sin that is not yet known by the whole congregation. We need to listen to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, to the steps that Jesus gave to us for addressing a brother's sin that is not yet known by the whole congregation. Jesus said in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those are the steps that Jesus gives. And in every step of addressing sin, the aim is repentance and restoration. If there's repentance, you don't go any further with those steps. If there's repentance, then there's restoration to fellowship. The instructions in 1 Corinthians 5 about removing a sinning member from the church and ceasing to associate with them do not mean that only sinless people can be members of the church. Then no one could belong the church. One of the reasons why we gather as a church is because we struggle with sin and temptation. And we need to be reminded of our Savior and His grace. So do not misunderstand these instructions that we are studying to mean that only sinless people can be members of the church. 1 John says that if anyone says they're without sin, they're a liar, and the truth is not in them. What these instructions do mean is that you cannot both be a member of a church and be unwilling to forsake sin. You cannot both be a member of a church and be unwilling to forsake the sinful activities from which you have been freed to the sacrifice of our Passover lamb. God has purposed that His redeemed ones, the church, would be distinct from the world. God has purposed that His redeemed ones would reflect His character. In calling us to the Lord Jesus Christ, God has called us out of our allegiance to the world. And to profess faith in Christ as Lord and Savior is to renounce sin. And a person who refuses to walk consistently with his profession is not to be allowed to continue in fellowship with the church. There is an important difference between, on the one hand, confessing your sin, having godly grief over your sin, hating your sin, and seeking the Lord's help to put sin to death and replace it with righteousness, and on the other hand, continuing in sin. There's an important difference between those two. It is when a member persists in the second category, after being adequately called to repentance, that we are to stop associating with them. This is what church discipline requires of the church. Now there may also be times when we need to apply this teaching to our relationship with a professing Christian who is known as a Christian, but is not part of a church. If you confront them about sin in their life, and they refuse to repent, you may need to cease associating with them. You need wisdom in such a situation. and You would need to clearly and lovingly explain why. You can no longer associate with them. Urge them again to repent and assure them that if they repent, you will be there for them. You would need to communicate that if you make that decision to no longer associate with them. You can't just stop associating with them. Well, having seen in the first half of our text what church discipline requires of the church, we turn now to the second half of our text where we see what church discipline recognizes regarding the church and the world what church discipline recognizes regarding the church and the world. Church discipline recognizes the sharp distinction between the church and the world. In the first half of our text, Paul clarified that in his first letter, he did not mean that we are to disassociate ourselves from the sinners of this world, but rather from anyone who bears the name of brother if he is in persistent sin. And Paul continues this line of thought in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Now, this does not mean that we are to be indifferent to how unbelievers outside the church live. Paul himself is an example of not being indifferent toward that. In Acts 17, verse 16, when the Apostle Paul came to Athens, we read that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. If you love God, you will not be indifferent to how unbelievers live. Paul's not talking about being indifferent. What Paul's words here do mean that it is not for us to seek to reform the behavior of unbelievers. It's not for us to seek to discipline unbelievers by not associating with them. Our responsibility toward unbelievers is to evangelize them. God is their judge. Paul says it is those inside the church whom we are to judge. And what he means by this is that it is those inside the church whom we are to evaluate. We're to evaluate their outward behavior, According to the clear standards of Scripture, we are to call sin what it is. We are to call for repentance. And we are to remove from fellowship if there is no repentance. That's the kind of judging he talks about when he says here in verse 12, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now there are passages that tell us not to judge, meaning not to judge the motives of another, not to judge others according to a standard other than the Word of God, But here we are to judge those inside the church, evaluating outward behavior according to the clear standard of Scripture, calling sin what it is, calling for repentance, and removing from fellowship if there is no repentance. We are responsible to maintain the purity of the church as a witness to the purity of God. Now this brings us to the conclusion of the chapter. Look at how the apostle concludes at the end of verse 13. He says, Purge the evil person from among you. Now the ESV puts quotation marks around those words, indicating that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And many editions of the ESV and other translations give cross-references that show where a quotation is found in the Old Testament. This instruction purge the evil person from among you, uh, is found at least five times in the book of Deuteronomy. And your cross-references might show that to you. Uh, This command, purge the evil person from among you, was part of Israel's case law. Uh, This instruction was given to Israel in cases of idolatry, bearing false witness against someone in court, sexual immorality, and kidnapping. In those cases, Israel was called upon to purge the evil person from among them. Except in the case of false testimony, this instruction regarded capital punishment. They were to be purged from the midst of Israel through capital punishment. Now Paul takes these words from Deuteronomy, and he uses them in our text as an instruction to remove a member from the church. Purge the evil person from among you. Because God has purposed that there be a sharp distinction between the church and the world. Just as in the Old Testament, God purposed that there be a sharp distinction between Israel and the world. Church discipline recognizes this sharp distinction between the church and the world. The world is on its way to hell, while the church is on its way to heaven. The world is enslaved to sin. While the church has been redeemed, out of slavery to sin, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The church has been set apart from the world unto God by the sacrifice of our Passover lamb and is called to be holy unto the Lord. There could not be a sharper distinction between two groups of people than there is between the world and the church. Now, if we purge from among us a member who is living in sin, what should we do then, if they repent? It's very important. That, that's what we're praying for. That's what we're hoping for. They'll repent. What should we do if they repent? We'll turn over to Second Corinthians. You do not need to hold on the first. Turn over to Second Corinthians chapter two. In Second Corinthians chapter two, starting in verse five, Paul gives some instructions for restoring a member who had been removed from the church. He says here in verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. It's talking about excommunication. This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for you are not ignorant of his design. If someone has been removed from the church and then they repent, Satan would love to get into that situation and keep that church from restoring that individual. Satan would love to keep that church from forgiving the individual. Paul says we need to be careful that we are not outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his designs. Paul says, When the sinning member repents, you forgive him. You forgive him as Christ forgave you. Christ forgave us graciously, freely, completely. And we are to reflect the gospel by fully forgiving one who has been removed and then repents. God said, when he promised forgiveness, he said, I will remember your sins no more. Amazing thought that an omniscient God Says, I will remember your sins no more. Obviously, it does not mean that he will lose awareness that our sins have occurred. It means he will never hold them against us. And this is the same love that we are to give one another. We are to forgive as Christ forgave us. We are to seek to remember those sins no more. Making a commitment, I will never hold this against you. I will do my best to never bring it to, th- to, to, to thought. Jesus has forgiven me of all of my sins, my many sins, and we give you the same forgiveness. That's to be what we are to be ready to do if we have to follow these instructions and disassociate, remove the sinning member. Let me ask you, where do you stand today? Everything that we have studied in 1 Corinthians 5 is predicated on the truth that there is a fundamental difference between a true Christian and the world. A Christian is not someone who is merely interested in Christ and the Bible. A Christian is not someone who is merely trying to follow the example and teaching of Christ. If either were the case, then there would not be much difference between a Christian and the world. There's a fundamental difference between a Christian and the world because a Christian has been born of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says, You know that He, that is the Son of God, appeared in order to take away sin. And in Him there is no sin. And in verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. To be a Christian is to be someone who has been born of God. And when you are born of God, God puts his seed in us, meaning that that he imparts his holy nature to us. He changes our nature. Our nature was... was, was we had a sinful nature. That, that, that sinful heart is removed in salvation and replaced with a heart of, of flesh. God's seed is put in us. His nature is imparted to us. And therefore, there will be a difference in the way that a Christian lives compared to the way that the world lives because of a change of heart, a change of nature. And so... John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Not meaning that no one born of God sins. He made that clear in chapter 1, we do still sin. But he's saying that no one will continue in sin without repentance. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again you must be born of the spirit you must be born of God in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven if you have not been born of God you need to be saved and there's only one who can save you and that's the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord gave him that name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins the heart of the Bible is the good news That God in His grace and mercy sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. He entered the world through the virgin conception. Jesus, who is very God of very God, became flesh. He took on the form of a servant. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. And He laid down His life as an atoning sacrifice upon the cross. He died for sinners. He fulfilled Isaiah 53, foretelling that, that the Christ would bear our sin. He would bear our guilt. And there upon the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for sinners. He died in our place. He was buried, and on the third day, He was raised in victory. As the Father was declaring that He had accepted Christ's sacrifice, The Father was declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. The Father was declaring Jesus to be the one whom He had appointed to be the future judge of the living and the dead. Jesus Christ ascended to the Father after appearing alive to over 500 of His disciples. And Jesus Christ commanded His apostles to proclaim the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ salvation through Christ's death for our sins and His victorious resurrection on the third day. And the gospel calls upon you to repent of your sin, to to turn from your sin, to confess your sin, to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. Believing that He is who He claimed to be, that He is God who became flesh. Trusting in Him as your Savior from sin. Believing in Him as your Lord. Submitting your life in faith to Jesus Christ, to follow Him as your master the rest of your days. The Bible promises salvation, forgiveness of sins, justification, adoption into God's family, the gift of the Spirit, an inheritance with Christ to the one who repents of their sin and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, if you have not been saved, if you have not been born of God, If you are still in your trespasses and sins, then I urge you to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. May the Lord use what we've seen here in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, not only this week, but in the last several weeks. May the Lord use this passage to equip us so that we are ready uh, to to respond appropriately uh, when there is someone in our church who is in sin and will not repent. Lord, use this to prepare us for that. May we, At the same time, may we be keeping short accounts. May we, may we be quick to repent of sin. May we, may we be filled with love for our brothers and sisters, so that when we are concerned about the direction that they're walking, or the direction that does not appear to please the Lord, that we'd be quick to, in love, come alongside them, and to correct, and to teach, and instruct, and to to, to call our brothers and sisters to, to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And may the Lord use this passage that we have studied to remind us of the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ and the holiness of Christ church and the holiness of the believer that we would live accordingly we have been made an unleavened lump we have been sanctified by the offering of Christ at the cross now we are to live accordingly a life of holiness to the glory of Christ Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for what You have given us in Your Word. We thank You for sending Christ, our Passover Lamb. We thank You for salvation through His death. We thank You for new life through His resurrection. Lord, we pray that You would help us to, to follow Christ as those who have been made holy. Lord, help us to grow in in reflecting the very character of Christ, which is your character, O Father. For that is what you have purposed. You chose us that we would be holy and blameless in your sight. You redeemed us so that we would be distinct from the world. You redeemed us so that we might be an an eternal reflection of who you are. O Lord, Help us to live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.